Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. The question this time is, what does effective conflicts of interest compliance look like? First, I want to, as always, encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, send us any kind of feedback that you have, uh, questions, things you'd like us to cover in the future. You can reach us at our website at compliancebeat.com, or you can reach us through moreheadconsulting.com. I also want to announce that I'm going to be partnering with our friends at SAI Global for a webinar coming up here in the next week or so. Actually, it's going to be on Wednesday, March 28th at 10 a.m. Central Time. The title is, You Did What? The U.S. Department of Justice Expectations for Ethics and Compliance Programs in 2018. So we'll be talking about uh, some of the most recent information and guidance that's been coming out of the department and other regulators over the last year or so. And it should be a good synopsis of, of the expectations that our friends in D.C. will have for our compliance program. So please join us for that. The information on uh, how to sign up for that webinar will be in the show notes. As with the webinars we have hosted ourselves in the past, this one will be free. So please join us. And I believe that we're going to have CCB credits uh, for your CCEP. I believe it's going to be approved for 1.2 hours. So please join us for that. Again, the information will be in the show notes of this podcast and probably the podcast next, next week because that'll come on before the actual event. That's March 28th. So with no further ado, let's talk a little bit about conflicts of interest. Uh, just coming off spring break, uh, I hope that you guys missed me. I'm sorry we didn't get a podcast up last week, but we were in the midst of spring break here in Texas. Uh, I believe uh, most of the country that didn't have spring break last week is having it this week. And so I started thinking about vacation. And whenever I do that, I start thinking about some of the classic conflict situations that I first came across when I was a criminal defense attorney uh, practicing in Houston uh, now almost two decades ago. And those um, uh, those kind of conflicts were really obvious. <laughs> and that stands into, I think, the contrast that we often see now with many of the conflicts issues that come up in modern organizations that we have to be aware of, the things that maybe on their own are immaterial but could add up uh, if there is a trend one way or the other that is not uh, positive. More and more organizations, uh, whether whether you're in a highly regulated regulated space or not, are finding that they need to have a better handle on conflicts of interest. And I think there's three areas. You know, I love threes. Three areas that I think you want to focus on if you're going to have a an effective uh, conflicts of interest compliance program. The first uh, is no surprise, and this is the one that most organizations have some semblance of, and that's a written standard. Um, common question that I get here, and this often comes up in the context of rewriting codes of conduct or revising codes of conduct or writing codes of conduct where no code of conduct currently exists, is whether conflicts of interest should reside 
in its own separate policy, in the code of conduct, or both places? I don't think there's any right answer here. Uh, it obviously has to exist somewhere, and I think that it would be the odd circumstance where you wouldn't have a robust discussion of conflicts of interest within the code of conduct or code of ethics itself. I think many organizations, that's the only statement of the conflict's policy is within the code of conduct or the code of ethics, and I think that's perfectly fine. What I see some organizations do, and I think this can be beneficial depending on uh, what your bandwidth is and also what kind of issues you're facing, is having a, uh, not necessarily a standalone policy, but some sort of guidance document that goes along with the policy that's stated in the code of conduct that walks through some more specific scenarios. For example, in your code of conduct, you probably will have a strong statement about the fact that we, uh, as in, in employees of the organization, are not going to directly supervise or be responsible for the hiring, firing, or measurement or oversight of personnel that we have a personal relationship with whether that's our family member or somebody else that we have a close personal relationship with. That's a pretty common uh, statement about a portion of the conflicts of interest policy. But what you might do is in your code of conduct, you have a you know sh short statement like a sentence or sentence or two that talks about what we do will and will not do. But maybe you have a separate document that you cross-reference out to that goes through a couple of scenarios. Uh, that talks about uh, a situation where, for instance, someone is dating someone else and a, a position opens up in the organization that they, that the uh, one person who already works at the organization would have supervisory responsibilities for. Well, you can set that scenario up, talk about what's uh, allowable and what's not allowable under your policy. You can spend, you know, a paragraph or two talking about a specific issue, particularly if that is an issue that's come up over and over again in your organization. Uh, many times, particularly on this uh, familial aspect, I, I talk to organizations who have, particularly if their organization came out of a family-run business, where there are a lot of people who are related to each other uh, in the chain of command. That presents its own peculiar and particular problems. And if there's an issue that continually comes up around hiring or supervision or annual review or whatever it is, where there's the potential for a conflict of interest, and you want to get into some specific scenarios around that and you just don't have the real estate in your code of conduct or you don't want to have five pages in your code of conduct devoted to conflicts of interest scenarios, then that's a perfect uh, place for a separate document. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to call it your conflicts of interest policy. You can just call it a guidance document or a supplement or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it can be a perfect place to house uh, collateral material scenarios, more in-depth definitions or explanations on the ins and outs of what you expect around conflicts of interest. I think that's a perfectly valid use of a standalone written standard uh, that doesn't have anything to do with you know setting out the black and white basic premises around which you want to construct your conflicts of interest policy. Another place where this can be helpful is I've had a few clients in the past say, 
We're particularly interested or concerned, or maybe not concerned, but interested in avoiding conflicts issues at the board of directors level, but it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have a specific particular discussion about a, an issue, a conflicts issue that would come up at the board of directors level, such as owning a significant share of a target company during an acquisition or something like that. And it doesn't make much sense to have a detailed description about that or a scenario or a Q&A about it because it's not something that comes up that often. And it's a very small percentage of the population that we want to serve through the code of conduct. It's another perfect example of something that could be in a supplement or, or some other cross-reference document. I think that uh, you just need to think about the scenarios where conflicts of interest come up, where they're important, uh, where they've come up in the past, you know, taking a look at any reports you've had in the past, taking a look at questions that have come up, uh, taking a look at your peer organizations and issues that have come up regarding conflicts of interest with your peer organizations that you want to try to avoid. And again, put what you can in the code of conduct itself. Uh, but if you feel like there's a lot of really valuable and helpful collateral that just would make that section too lengthy, uh, would slow down the the uh, pace, otherwise bog down content of your code of conduct, uh, you consider putting it in something else and cross-referencing out to it. Uh, I think that's perfectly acceptable. And that's a and that's a, a separate and apart from having a standalone conflicts of interest policy, which there's nothing wrong with. But uh, why reiterate the, those ba basic points? I think it's probably more helpful and more useful for you and for the audience to have some supplementary materials that don't just reiterate uh, the conflicts policy. There's nothing particularly comp complicated about the basic uh, pieces of the puzzle when it comes to conflicts of interest and describing conflicts of interest problems and disclosure and the basic points that you want to get across in your code of conduct. So you don't necessarily need to waste the real estate on a separate standalone policy to reiterate that if you've already got a strong discussion in your code of conduct. But you know these other things, these uh, things you'd like to be able to do if you had all the space in the world and all the time in the world, uh, you can certainly do in a supplement. The second thing that is really important, and I already mentioned it just a second ago, and that's disclosure. I'm surprised still to this day when I talk to organizations, particular organiza particularly organizations that are not in a highly regulated space or a, a, in healthcare or another uh, highly regulated space in particular where uh, disclosures and, and conflicts, annual and regular conflicts of interest disclosures are, have been common for a long time. There are a lot of organizations that still don't do this, even at the upper, upper, upper levels of their organization, at the board level and the executive level and senior management level, and you really should be. Uh, at least have had a discussion about it and determine uh, very carefully in a uh, going through a risk-based analysis, analysis as to why you're not doing it. And by disclosure, I mean having an annualized or or at least regular process, process if not on an annual basis, where you solicit uh, individuals to certify as to uh, any kind of conflicts of interest disclosures that they may have. Uh, usually this is in the form of a questionnaire. I've seen it set up on uh, electronically quite frequently. I think that that's becoming more and more common. Often it's on a SharePoint site, uh, not to say it has to be on a SharePoint site or endorse SharePoint necessarily. I've seen uh, many LMS systems 
uh, learning management systems that uh, have certification or disclosure uh, options. Oftentimes, this will be coupled with the code of conduct certification. So you'll have a code of conduct certification on an annual basis that is run through the LMS system. And along with that, uh, there's a, uh, a short conflicts of interest uh, questionnaire and disclosure uh, certification, if you will, as well. Uh, I don't think uh, there's anything wrong about uh, running those together, particularly if you have the resources and the platform, the tool to do that. By the same token, I know a lot of organizations that still do this by hand. Some lucky compliance officer or compliance manager gets to uh, compile a spreadsheet uh, based on written disclosure submissions. I don't think there's, you know, there's no right way to do this. And if you don't have the tools, you have to do what you can do. I think that you at least need to, if you aren't currently doing the conflicts of interest disclosure on a regular basis with some portion of your population, uh, at least think about why you're not and whether that makes sense. And, and as with everything else, have a defendable position about uh, the choices you've made. I get a lot of questions also about what should go into a, a disclosure questionnaire or disclosure request. The, the questions can vary pretty broadly, but there are some basic pieces of the puzzle that I'd always expect to see. Uh, first and foremost, I think you need to have some explanation as to why you're asking for this information and asking them to disclose. You need to talk about who it applies to, uh, maybe have uh, the same definition of broad definition of what a conflict is that you have in your code of conduct uh, uh, included there so that you can kind of reiterate some of the basic principles and then explain the why. Why do you need uh, uh, your employees, your officers, your board of directors, whomever it is, whatever the population is, why do you need them to disclose? And I think you have to, you know, lay it out there and say, look, you know, uh, there, this is, there's an important uh, aspect here. We need to know about uh, relationships and uh, investments and other potential conflicts that can impede, could impede the business of the organization. And uh, we just need to make sure that your personal business, your personal relationships don't have a, uh, and couldn't have and may, and will not have a potential material effect on the organization moving forward. I mean, I think you just be real, real specific about why you're asking. Um, and then what are the things you ask about? You ask about ownership, uh, beneficial ownership or stock ownership over a certain percentage. And everybody has different thresholds for these things. So you have to figure out, if you haven't already, uh, what, what your expectations are. Then you're obviously going to have at least a couple of questions about uh, relationships, both familial relationships and other relationships, and whether uh, individuals uh, related to the person disclosing uh, potentially have some sort of interest uh, that could conflict with the organization, have a business that they're operating that may uh, be bidding for, for uh, uh, work with the organization, whatever the case might be. And uh, a lot of this is going to be guided by uh, what you know from what's happened in the past, what's happened to peer organizations, what's been reported up that are the, the real problems, the potential problems that you have out there with conflicts. Other things you're going to ask about are uh, any relationship that your employee or the relations of your employee might have with competitors. Any relation, particularly if you're in a highly reg regulated space, any relation that your employee or their uh, familial or friend relations might have with regulators, federal and state. Uh, any other relationships, uh, you can have some throw in some broad questions there, particularly at the end of the questionnaire, uh, that try to catch any other relationship or any other uh, uh, financial um, uh, benefit or relationship that might 
potentially uh, uh, impact the organization or potentially be a conflict of interest. And that's the important thing is to say, look, we're not necessarily looking for things that are for sure uh, uh, conflicts of interest. We need to find out about things that could have the appearance uh, of being a conflict of interest or potentially could be conflicts in the future because we need to prepare for that and have uh, a good, good vision on any kind of potential issue. Another area that you're traditionally probably going to cover in this area is any kind of outside employment or uh, additional um, role that your employee might have that could uh, impact or conflict with their job responsibilities or the, or the resources of the organization. Uh, you know, that includes, you know, things like being involved in uh, boards for, for nonprofit entities, whatever it might be. You want to have questions where you can have uh, sufficient, sufficiently broad questions where you can capture a lot of activity. And again, this is all going to be driven by what you foresee as your potential risks here. It's very flexible. And then lastly, uh, if you're putting together a questionnaire or disclosure form, I think it's important to, to provide some, de some at least minor detail about what is going to happen after. What happens if there is a, a answer uh, that, deem that is necessitates some follow-up? So you might say, uh, if you answer yes to any of the following questions and provide information, we will probably be in contact with you to follow up and find out more. Uh, just let them know what's going to happen. Let them know who's, who's going to handle it. Let them know that you know the fact that there is a, a potential conflict or even a real conflict is not necessarily uh, the end of the world and that these things can be managed, but they just have to be disclosed uh, no matter what the circumstance is so that they can uh, be uh, dealt with and, and properly uh, managed. That's an important piece of the puzzle to make sure that everybody who fills out the form or, or, or uses the tool uh, has some knowledge as to what a, uh, a affirmative answer to some of these questions might mean for them. Uh, that way they won't be dissuaded to uh, obfuscate or, or not provide you full information. So you want to give them a, a very clear and, and accurate but positive, positive bit of information about what happens uh, when there are some potential issues and the fact that the goal is to resolve all of this and to resolve it in a positive way for all parties involved. So then the third thing, if you've got your disclosure in order and you've got your tool or your disclosure questionnaire that you send out and You've got your written standards in order. You've spiffed up your code of conduct, and you have some other collateral materials out there. Well, and then I think the other, th the third thing, if you're going to have three pieces of this puzzle, is training and communication. No surprise here. Um, I, and uh, just as I said earlier, when when you're con contemplating your written standards, if you're going to do something outside the code of conduct, for it to be based on. Uh, uh, Scenario, be scenario-based or, or otherwise be um, supplemental to the basic points. I think that, that your training and your communication should focus as much as possible on, on that too and, and go through these scenarios, go through things that have commonly happened in the past, whether those are employment and supervisory potential conflicts or whether that's uh, external employment 
conflicts, whatever it is that you've run into in the past that uh, is a recurring theme <laughs> with the conflicts of interest in, in your organization or with your peer organizations, then I think that uh, your communication and training should reflect that. You should have uh, scenarios and um, discussions about uh, commonplace things, things that come up all the time or questions that come up all the time. I had one client um, who had uh, had some information in their code of conduct for years uh, that talked about investment over a certain percentage in uh, a stock uh, of a potential competitor or competitor uh, needed to be disclosed. And they had uh, a, a large part of their workforce was heavily invested in the market because they were in the financial sector. And so they had a lot of queries about people who had mutual funds that you know probably had some portion of stock that was with the competitor that could be considered or with a organization that could be considered a competitor within that mutual fund. So they had to clear, They eventually clarified uh, their their stance on this. But but in the meantime, they had some education about it. They had uh, regular communication that said you know if you are have vested in a mutual fund where you don't have control or management over the investments, uh, there may be a percentage of those investments with uh, competitors of our organization, and that's perfectly fine under our rules. Uh, and they just walk through that scenario because it had happened so many times. Same same token f uh, works for everyone else. If you have recurring questions that you've gotten over the years, and maybe you don't, but if you do, then obviously those are things that you're going to want to communicate about informally or put into your training efforts. Uh, I think conflicts is one of those areas where having um, uh, scenarios or, or, or role-based training really uh, works well because these are things that have to be played out. These are about relationships, right? Uh, these are about uh, your, uh, your 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 relatives that have uh, you know work for competitors, or your relatives that are subcontractors that want to work for your company, or your relative that wants to come work for your company, and you're a supervisor. These are all very, very fact-based and all, um, all having to do with the relative relationships uh, between your employee, uh, your organization, and some third party out there, whether that's an or another organization or an individual. And so that really uh, uh, plays well to having a scenario or, or, or doing a lot of storytelling, if you will. And so I think that that's the way your training ought to look for compliance, uh, for conflicts of interest as well, is it really should be story-based and it should hit those important points uh, rather clearly and, uh, and specifically. And you're not going to hit everything. Uh, there, there's, there's too many permutations out there. Uh, but you can certainly spend the time to walk through a scenario where a supervisor uh, wants to hire his cousin or her cousin, um, but um, uh, you know understands because they understand the rules, right? Uh, that they can't uh, be responsible for the hiring process or be or ultimately be in a supervisory position. So you can walk through that scenario and and discuss how how it might work or how how it can work. Uh, within your organization. And I think that uh, those kind of things are the most effective way uh, to communicate these sometimes complicated and sometimes esoteric issues around conflicts. Uh, I think it, it lends itself to that kind of uh, scenario um, uh, format or, or storytelling format even more than a lot of the other compliance issues we train on on a regular basis.
So those are three things uh, that I think are important uh, to having a, an effective conflicts of interest compliance uh, program. Um, they all are pretty straightforward, but um, maybe you haven't really thought too much about your disclosure process. Maybe you haven't thought too much about uh, where your conflicts of interest information is housed, whether it's in the code or your standalone policy or somewhere in between. And, um, you know, certainly we train on conflicts pretty regularly, but it might be worth taking a look at that training. And again, I think shying away from too much uh, recitation of the sort of black letter rules and, and talking more about these specific scenarios that come up uh, to try to better explain the concepts. I hope that's helpful. Uh, as I said earlier, please join us uh, on March 28th for our webinar um, that I'm putting on uh, in association with SAI Global. Uh, and again, the uh, that's going to be at 10 a.m. Central Time. You did what? U.S. Department of Justice Expectations for Ethics and Compliance Programs in 2018. So we'll be talking about the guidance uh, that's come out here in the last few years, uh, what makes an effective program uh, from the perspective of that guidance. I think that uh, that's going to cover a lot of ground that we've covered on this podcast over the last couple of years. But um, uh, if you uh, are interested, I think it's uh, going to be worthwhile. Uh, we're hope hopeful to have credit uh, for, for, for that webinar, and it will also be free. So uh, please click on the link uh, here in the show notes uh, to sign up, uh, and we'll see you there on the 28th. And if not, I'll see you here next time on Compliance Beat. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.